Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and then today I get to speak with Dr. Chad Bauman from Butler University on his fascinating new book, Anti-Christian Violence in India. Hello, Chad, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is mine, and your um, interview is timely. Uh, in the timeless time of podcast land, uh, know that this is the first one uh, that I'm recording in this calendar year, uh, 2021. And uh, we are in the cusp of a really exciting and important uh, change, tweak uh, in the podcast. Uh, it may be official already by the time you hear this, but. Uh, nothing is changing except the title of the podcast. Rather than New Books in Hindu Studies, this will now henceforth be known as the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. And uh, if you're wondering why, listen to this podcast. <laughs> and you'll understand that there's so much going on um, uh, in what we call India and South Asia that... Um, can't quite fit into Hinduism, right? And so we've had Jainism studies on this podcast. Today we're having a study on the relationship between Christianity and uh, Hinduism within India and the frame Indian religions um, is being implemented for the sake of inclusion. But nothing else will change except it'll afford me uh, 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 it'll afford me the opportunity to to invite uh, a broader range of scholars on the podcast. So, Chad, you're the first one under this umbrella. How do you feel? Uh, that's a little daunting. Daunting. <laughs> I think he means honored and excited, but either way. Um, yeah, of course, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how did you come about writing a book called Anti-Christian Violence in India? Tell us about that journey. Yeah, um, you know, it's as academic trajectories go and research trajectories go, uh, it was um, somewhat accidental. It's kind of uh, the development of, of, of a research project that uh, was planned in some ways and in other ways was just kind of the way things went. So um, I did my dissertation on the colonial interaction of Hindus and Christians in the state of Chhattisgarh. And um, that uh, research took me right up to the year 1947, independence. Um, and in that year, uh, tensions were beginning to rise in the region between Hindus and Christians. And um, so I began to wonder, you know, what was going on? because Hindu-Christian conflict, Hindu-Christian violence has not always been a feature of the relations between Hindus and Christians in, in India. Uh, so uh, it was sort of a natural progression from the research that took me right up until 1947 to research that went beyond 1947. And I became really fascinated with 
uh, this question of why Hindus and Christians uh, were beginning to c conflict with one another and why uh, violence between them was beginning to to rise. And uh, so then I I, uh, I started in on that project and uh, I was beginning to focus a little bit on why Pentecostals and charismatic Christians in India were just disproportionately targeted in anti-Christian violence when an opportunity arose through a grant that came um, from the Center for Religion and Civic Culture um, at USC uh, to join a project uh, that, that gave me support to do uh, that research in a much broader way. And that led then to uh, the book I did before this one, uh, Pentecostalism, Proselytization and Anti-Christian Violence in India, which is a more specific book looking at the more specific question of the disproportionate targeting of Pentecostals in that violence. Um, but it also um, uh, allowed me to gather the data for this second more general book, which is really just an investigation of, of um, why uh, today there is conflict between Hindus and Christians and why there is anti-Christian violence. So when you say gather the data for this book, do you want to school me on um, what you've looked at? And also you mentioned at the outset um, that this is fairly recent. And so do you want to talk about perhaps, um, I think you mentioned in your book that 1982 is the first real example of this. So maybe you could talk about the when and the, the what you're looking at in your book. Sure. Um, so uh, there have been periodic uh, violent conflicts between Hindus and Christians, uh, particularly since the arrival of Europeans. And as colonialism came to be more and more entrenched and Christianity became more and more associated both with colonial powers and with lower caste Indians, uh, conflict between people understanding themselves as Hindu, a distinct religion, and people understanding themselves as Christian, a distinct uh, religion came to be more and more common. But it was still very, very unusual up until the late 1990s. And that's when, as you say, in 1998, there was uh, a riot in Dongs, in the Dongs of uh, Gujarat. Um, and it wasn't uh, nearly as bad as the more recent uh, riots in Kandamal, Orisha in uh, 2007 and 2008, but it did mark a kind of turning point in history. And uh, so since the late 1990s, we've seen a, a kind of exponential increase from a few isolated incidents a year to something more like several hundred a year. And that number has been pretty steady now for the last decade or so, actually more for the last two decades, really. So that's the, uh, the sort of when. Um, the how of the data collection, this, my projects have generally been interdisciplinary. So I started off with some statistical data collection, just trying to collect news reporting and human rights organization reporting of incidents of anti-Christian violence, keeping uh, a, a spreadsheet of them. Uh, I have an extensive spreadsheet for the years uh, 2007 and 2008, and uh, then doing some statistical work to see what kind of correlate correlations that one can find uh, between incidents of violence and say uh, the party in power in a state economic issues in the state, competition, economic competition, economic disparity, uh, the extent to which uh, people are employed or unemployed, 
uh, gender ratio, all kinds of things like this, the things that people who look at violence and conflict tend to look at. I did that work with a colleague of mine, Tamara Leach, who's the numbers person who knows this kind of research much better than me, but it did allow me to look in a more sociological or statistical way at what was going on and try to develop some sort of theses. And then in addition to that, I just spent uh, a lot of time interviewing people uh, really all around India, except in the Northeast, uh, just talking to people who, who had been victims of violence, people who uh, were uh, human rights activists who had different kinds of perspectives on the reasons for the violence, different kinds of interpretations of, of um, why these things were happening. I also talked to a number of people who were very supportive of the uh, attempts by certain people within song organizations to marginalize Christians, so people who were very critical of Christianity, um, and tried to just develop a, a, a useful theory, um, a useful explanation for the variety of factors that contributed to this conflict between Hindus and Christians uh, and, and occasionally anti-Christian violence. And so then to what do you attribute this violence? <laughs> well, that's a difficult and maybe, well, I don't know if you want the short answer or the, or the long answer. Um, I really set about in this book to write a more complicated, uh, uh, to, to tell a more complicated story about anti-Christian violence than is usually told. So one of the ways I did that was by trying to ratchet down the rhetoric uh, perpetuating neither the crassest of the songs, critiques of Christianity, nor the crassest, most exaggerated and shrill accounts of anti-Christian violence that we often get from Christian advocacy groups. Um, I also said about, you know, right, right from the beginning to acknowledge and even emphasize from the first paragraph of the book that anti-Christian violence and Hindu-Christian conflict in India also affects Hindus in very real and negative ways. And of course, one of the um, central incidents in the round of riots that happened in Orissa in 2007 and 2008 was the assassination of, of a controversial but very beloved uh, Hindu Swami, Swami Lakshmananda Saraswati, uh, along with several of his supporters. And um, so I tried to tell a story here that um, was attentive to all of the kind of suffering that was involved here and didn't fall into the trap, you know, of, of atrocity literature that just kind of looks only at things from one um, perspective. But in terms of my explanation for uh, why uh, we have anti-Christian violence in India, I really tried to resist unicausal explanations. I was inspired here by the work of Mark Taylor, who talks about the webbiness of all social phenomena, how things are connected. Uh, through different kind of social and uh, technological and human and cultural networks, and by um, Arjuna Padrai and his insistence that the, the what he calls the geography of anger is always the spatial outcome of interactions between faraway events and proximate fears. That's what he talks about. So um, I wanted to resist explanations that focused exclusively on one factor, politics, economics, uh, the provocation of proselytization, anti-Dalit prejudice, etc. I wanted to resist theories that were only local, that looked only to India and did not consider India in the context of global flows of ideas and political 
uh, machinations and political power and wealth. Um, and, you know, unicausal explanations have an admirable parsimony, but that alone should not recommend them uh, to us. In fact, I, I think it should make us suspicious of them. So I um, then, because of this desire to resist unicausal explanations, I adopted a constructivist approach uh, to anti-Christian violence um, it, because I think it allows us to be more attentive to this complexity. And what I, here's what I mean when I say constructivist. First, uh, just the, the literal meaning of the term. Interreligious conflict and Hindu-Christian conflict is constructive. Um, so I'll maybe say a bit more about what I mean by that. Um, constructivism as an approach to interreligious conflict or to conflict in general accepts um, the best insights of in instrumentalist theories, which focus on material self-interest, and the best instincts of essentialist theories, which focus on culture. Um, so constructivism accepts from instrumentalists that economic competition is a major driver of conflict and from essentialists that cultural differences and therefore religious differences matter, um, but maybe not always in the way that people imagine. Um, but constructivists also take note that neither the instrumentalist nor the essentialist theory can fully account for why people conflict. So you could say well, lots of people are in economic conflict. Uh, lots of people have different religious and cultural uh, characteristics and yet they don't always come into conflict. So constructivists want to ask the question, why here and why now? And that requires attention to history. Um, so the second thing that I think is distinctive about the constructive approach is this attention to history um, to try to answer the question, why here and why now? And of course, a full chapter in this book is given to what's called the prehistory of Hindu-Christian conflict. That is, you know, there was a, a millennium of time in which there were Christians in India who did not conceive of themselves as a religious community we might call Christian against a religious community we might call Hindu, and such that Hindus, quote unquote, and Christians were not conflicting in any way we would consider a kind of religious conflict. A thousand years. So we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about the contemporary, when we're considering the contemporary period. Um, so, and then the third way that I think the constructivist account is, is distinctive is that it acknowledges that local factors are not the only thing going on, that, that local dynamics take place in the context of global flows of wealth, power, politics, uh, and that uh, we need to realize that, particularly in today's globalized world, uh, conflicts that appear to be local often have global elements to them. Um, so, and then the final thing that I think is useful about the constructivist account is that it, because it recognizes the historical nature of the development of such conflicts, it can be used to emphasize the contingency of contemporary conflicts. Hindu-Christian conflict today is contingent. It's not necessary. Um, it developed through this historical trajectory that is not necessary, not inherent in the dynamics of Hindus and Christians and, and their differences, and therefore, I think, can be walked back. This is, you know, the contingency of conflict should give us some hope that it can be walked back. 
And then I would say finally that all of this kind of approach leads to what is probably the most distinctive element of the book's argument, um, which is that anti-Christian violence in India is at least in part, and I wanna emphasize the in part, at least in part, in addition to things like politics, economics, proselytization, anti-Dalit prejudice, et cetera, a manifestation of resistance to the feared imposition of Western and particularly American forms of secularizing, uh, of secularism, that in their totalizing nature and their pretensions to universality are justifiably seen as a challenge to India's own distinct brand of secularism and this, the distinctive way that brand of secularism, that, that Indian brand of secularism structures Indian society. And it is therefore also Western kind of secular modernities are also a threat um, to India's traditional elites who are favored by this status quo in India today. So Indian Christians are not Western seculars by definition. Christianity does not equal Western or American secularism. But in India, uh, in my interviews, I found that um, a lot of Hindus perceive Christians as the primary purveyors and beneficiaries of Western forms of secular modernity. And they are criticized and harassed and sometimes attacked as a result of that perception. Um, and this thesis I think is also useful because it helps us explain why proselytization and conversion are such flashpoints in the relations of Hindus and Christians in contemporary India. And that's because proselytization and conversion presume and depend upon the existence of a very typically Western secularist definition of religion, of something that's private, individual, and portable, as opposed to the far more common Hindu and broadly Indian understanding of religion as something public, communal, and tied to a particular people and land. So the thesis here suggests that um, religions matter, religious differences matter, but really only as part of a larger kind of uh, civilizational differences uh, that think of religion itself differently. So we've got a, an interreligious conflict here, which in addition to whatever else it might be about, is also about the very definition of religion, what religion is and should be like. And, uh, and we've got different ideas in India, different ideas around the world, and a, at least a very small conflict of, of uh, at least a very small part of the conflict between Hindus and Christians in India uh, is related to the, those larger disagreements. So there are a number of themes I'd like to touch on in, in what you share. Prior to that, just for the sake of, of clarification, who are these Christians that you're speaking of in the book? So this particular book didn't focus on any particular group of Christians. As I mentioned, the, the, my previous book did focus on the, the disproportionate targeting of Pentecostals and, um, to a lesser extent, Pentecostalized evangelicals in India. Um, this book focuses on Christians in general, um, although we have to, we can make some distinctions within that category. So the first distinction to make is that whereas in the isolated, more everyday incidents of violence, um, that happen in a kind of disconnected way across India, you know, maybe uh, one or two a day on, on average. In those incidents, what we usually find is the 
intentional targeting of a particular person or group who has run afoul of uh, local actors for one reason or another, oftentimes for proselytizing boldly, sometimes just for um, having the good or bad luck of being at the head of a church community that's growing. And so um, there may be locals who are resistant to that growth, who um, want to try to intimidate or harass uh, that community, and they may attack it in a very intentional way. So in those kinds of attacks, we do see disproportionate targeting, targeting of the more evangelistic, the more proselytizing forms of Christianity. When the violence becomes a, a riot, as it did in the Dongs, in Gujarat in 1998, as it, as it did in Kandamal and Orissa in 2007 and 2008, then the targets are far more indiscriminate. And to some extent, the larger, more established denominations become the targets because you can find their churches, you can find their buildings, you can find their schools. Um, they have an established presence. So often in, in that violence, even though it may have been, to some extent, the proselytization of more of more assertively evangelistic Christians that created an offense uh, in, you know, to some, um, it, the violence might target everybody and anybody. Um, but we should say that in general, uh, certain forms of Christianity in India do have more of a dominant caste orientation. And because of that dominant caste orientation have tended to be somewhat have tended to be perceived as somewhat more thoroughly Indianized and um, and more Indian and have tended to be left alone. So the St. Thomas Christians in Kerala and other parts of, of southern India um, are often perceived as a dominant caste community. And it's frequently the case that they will ally with other dominant castes from other religious communities against uh, they're Christian co-religionists. Um, so you have the interesting intersectionality here of caste and religion, and people will ally themselves in complicated ways along those spectrums and along those lines of, of division. Uh, similarly, some of the more established Protestant and Catholic communities in India have been far less uh, evangelistic. Their missionary impulse is expressed largely through social service. And they tend not as frequently to provoke um, a kind of reactionary response uh, because uh, they are not growing in the same way and because they are not sort of out in the streets uh, proselytizing or criticizing other religions. Um, so there are some divisions within Christianity. And in fact, those um, more established Indian Christian communities, the St. Thomas Christians, the Catholic Christians, some of the more established Protestant Christian communities, um, they do often tend to uh, leave their Pentecostal and, e and evangelical co-religionists hanging high and dry in times of conflict because they want to separate themselves from them. And in some ways, they do blame those other forms of Christianity for provoking the conflict that sometimes uh, ends up targeting and affect negatively affecting all Christians. What role does race play, if any, in this conflict? I don't think that race plays a particular, um, a particularly prominent role. Um, there are regional differences that play into this. Um, Southern Indian Christians, for example, are so numerous that they often 
move into the North Indian areas and start proselytizing, and they're seen as foreign missionaries. You have these uh, sort of Kerala Christians or Tamil Christians moving into Gujarat and and proselytizing among Gujaratis, and uh, the Gujaratis perceive them as 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 somehow foreign, right? So there there are these regional differences. The same with the Northeast and uh, the rest of India. Um, there are, to some degree, you do hear some things that might verge on a kind of racist critique, for example, of Korean missionaries, Korean Christian missionaries in India, perceived as being foreign again, which I think is the primary issue, but it's also that they are uh, non-Indian. Um, but I think, uh, you know, if, if we're looking for factors, you know, other than religion, other than politics and economics, et cetera, I do think that the intercaste and intercommunity dynamics in India are probably far more prominent than than uh, than race. So, as you were describing, you know, the gist of your book earlier, you touched on what I think you're saying is a conflation um, a conflation of Christianity with um, Western secular modernity. Could you say a little bit more about that? I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think we have to, again, we have to keep well in mind that this is a conflation. The, the, the word you used was, was very appropriate. Um, the argument here is not that Christianity is inextricably connected to Western secular modernities. And I try all the time to put that in the plural to acknowledge, of course, that there is a great deal of variety among forms of secularism, even just in Europe and uh, North America. And, and we should also keep in mind that America's form of, of separation of church and state is really an outlier globally, even among Christian countries, even among Western countries, it's a very distinctive form of secularism. But Christianity, um, since the colonial period in India has been associated with the Western world. Now, I said already there was this millennium from, you know, from the from the early centuries of the common era right up until the arrival of the Portuguese, when you couldn't have made that assertion. Um, you know, Christianity at that time was if it, if it was associated with any place foreign, it was associated uh, with the with with the Middle East, uh, with Syria, et cetera, and the Church of the East. So. Um, you know, it just didn't make any sense at that point to think of Christianity as somehow Western. But after the colonial period and the way that uh, colonial rulers privileged and allied themselves with Christians and the way that uh, Christians in India who had been there before the arrival of European colonial figures began slowly to ally themselves with the colonial authorities, Christianity came to be perceived as a foreign Western religion. And of course, the lands in which Christianity predominated were until at least the beginning of the 20th century, predominantly Western lands. Uh, that's shifted now, of course, but in terms of uh, who, the, who the world thinks of as Christian, that's still, uh, you know, despite the statistics, still a kind of North European or a North American. Um, so um, there is this long association of Christianity with colonialism. And, uh, and there is this long suspicion, at least since the colonial period in India, that Christians in India are, um, have divided loyalties and that they're really loyal to uh, their kind of Western overlords, 
Um, and, and that assertion is based in part on the fact that there has been long historical financial support for, uh, for missions, Christian missions in India that comes from the West, as well as the fact that there is continuing uh, charity and support for Christianity in contemporary India. Um, and so there just is this assumption that Christians are in India are westward leaning. Um, and then to the extent that part of globalization involves the imposition, the increasingly aggressive imposition of Western, uh, Western political formations on other parts of the world and particularly the global South, there is a, a, a certain uh, fear or insecurity in places like India about whether or not the distinctive nature of Indian politics and society can be preserved in the face of this kind of globalizing force and its particular forms of politics. So in this case, a kind of Western secular modernity. So because of their long association with the West, which is, is its own kind of construction, um, and because of the assumption that sort of the Western world is today trying to impose uh, this particular notion of secularism on the rest of the world, um, there, it, there are some anxieties that I think get uh, foisted upon Christians. And part of it is that you, you know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to resist Western secular modernity, you, you can't resist it as, as a, in the abstract. It doesn't exist in an institutional form. So maybe you look about and you see, well, here's this group, these Christians that seem to be, um, who seem to really like these ideas, seem to purvey them, seem to benefit from them in terms of uh, in terms of education and uh, modern uh, ideals, etc., and so you attack that thing which you can see. Thank you. Could we say a bit more about um, um, secularism in the West versus secularism in India? Really, maybe the idea of religion and 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 the extent to which um, I don't mean to leave the question. The extent to which. Um, uh, the, the, the question of whether or not religion can be extricated from culture, from life, from politics, the very notion of secularism. Say a bit about what you, what you discover or argue in your book. Yeah, so what I argue is that there is something distinctive between the secularism in India and the secularism in a place like the United States. Um, this, this has been well articulated by lots of people other than me. Um, in, in the United States, you have a kind of very strong notion that uh, religion and the state should be separate, whereas secularism developed in a slightly different way in India and in a way that suggests not that, that the state should remain aloof from religion, but that it should simply avoid privileging one religious community more than another, supporting one religious community more than another. So, for example, in the Indian uh, constitution and judiciary, you will find far more willingness to intervene in religious affairs than you will find in the United States. To take one, I think, really telling example, the direction of U.S. law in recent years has been to avoid imposing anti-discrimination law in religious contexts. So to preserve the freedom of religious people in religious contexts, and maybe even in public contexts like pizza parlors and bakeries, et cetera, to discriminate in ways against LGBTQ folk, for example, that are otherwise illegal. Um, on the Indian side, 
you've seen far more of a willingness of the Indian government to intervene to enforce non-discrimination law, even in religious contexts, particularly in Hindu contexts, which is one of the things that angers Hindus, that they feel that they're uh, that the government is imposing uh, certain kind of liberal progressive ideals in Hindu contexts that they don't impose in Muslim and Christian contexts. But um, the, the conflict and the controversy of the Sabrimala temple in the last couple of years is a good example of this, where the government has sort of weighed in uh, to say that you cannot, uh, even for religious reasons, disallow the, uh, the attendance of women of a certain age uh, at your temple, because that runs afoul of uh, anti-gender discrimination laws. So there are differences there, um, but there's also differences, as you alluded to, um, and as I talk about in the book, between the conception of religion that, that informs these ideas of secularism. So it, everyone knows that in the sort of post-Enlightenment Western world, there was this movement to understand religion as a private thing that could be easily separated from politics, from economics, uh, and from government. Um, that was not the case in the pre-enlightenment world. Of course, you know, in the sort of Middle Ages, Catholicism and government were all kind of mixed up with each other. Um, but in the post-enlightenment world, there was that move to separate those two. Um, so now in the Western world, we function for the most part with this notion of, of religion that suggests it is this distinct thing that we, and that we can find very easily the lines separating religion from politics and that religion should stay away from politics, should stay away from it. In India, you have a different trajectory. You have a trajectory of, of Hinduism as an ethnic religion and even Jainism, Buddhism as essentially ethnic religions that tend to, tend to attach themselves to a particular people in a particular land. Um, you have a notion of religion that suggests that it's about spiritual advance, which can happen in any religious tradition. And therefore, out of respect, you should stay on your own and you shouldn't go meddling in other people's. Um, and if you have that kind of conception of religion, um, then you may resist giving people the right to proselytize because it implies that religion is this kind of personal choice, a private affair, separate from communities. It implies that religion is portable, that you, you know, there can be a Christian Indian and a Christian American and a, a Christian Nigerian, and you know, that makes perfect sense. So it, you know, these different kinds of understandings of what religion is and should be inform notions about the ideal form of politics the ideal form of secularism, and also the limits of religious freedom. So, I mean, one of the most pertinent questions in India today is, is, it, is, is proselytization a fundamental right of religious people because Christians want to do it and some other religious communities want to do it? Or is it something that a decent government, for good reason, could prohibit or restrict because, according to a very typical kind of Hindu understandings of, of religion, proselytization is kind of unnecessary and super, superfluous. So you could have full, decent religious freedom without having the right to proselytize. And that certainly plays into the conflict between Hindus and Christians. That's fascinating. The proselytization question I find particularly fascinating. 
and and and, and relevant, <laughs> ever relevant, as we figure out um, um, how to engage folks of various stripes um, in these textured societies we live in. Um, what um, what surprised you the most about your research, if anything? What were you interested to discover, or was it all fairly intuitive to you from the outset? I th- I think there were. I'm gonna have to think about that one a little bit. <laughs> I think that there were there were a lot of things that could have been predicted. Um, I was not expecting to come to the thesis I came to in this book. I think uh, initially I was persuaded by the kind of political and economic and caste-oriented arguments about the nature and the causes of anti-Christian violence and Hindu-Christian conflict more generally. Um, I still accept all of those theses as good as far as they go. It's just that I also came to understand that there was this other element, one that had one that was related to to global dynamics and not just local dynamics that people just weren't really talking about. So I, I think the the thesis of this book, you know, that tries to elevate that particular dynamic of this uh, sort of resistance to Western secular modernities. That was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I was also surprised because it happened right in the middle of the research um, that the the kind of low level Hindu Christian conflict that I had seen uh, in the years from, say, 1998 to 2007 spilled over into this large scale riot in Orisha in 2007 and 2008. And really, we should say large scale series of riots because it wasn't just one riot and they kind of they they went on for about a month in the end of 2007, early 2008, and then they started back up again uh, at the at the end of uh, at the end of 2008. So um, you know the I wasn't expecting that, um, and one of the reasons I wasn't expecting that was because historically there had been kind of a difference between anti-Muslim violence in India and anti-Christian violence in India. Anti-Muslim violence in India had there, there was a long history of Hindu-Muslim riots that where there would be dozens or hundreds of victims of violence, um, and uh, hundreds, uh, dozens or hundreds of deaths. Um, but that really had not been a feature of conflict between Hindus and Christians uh, until Kandamal. And still here, it was, uh, you know, we're talking about dozens of deaths instead of hundreds of deaths, as we sometimes see in the in the violence between Hindus and Muslims. But so I guess, yeah, I mean, it was a surprise to me, partly because it happened right in the middle of my research and um, w- w- at a time when I was really focusing on these isolated kind of everyday incidents of violence against Christians. I just didn't expect there to ever be that kind of large-scale riot violence like we saw in, in Orissa in 2007 and 2008. So I would say those are the two main things that that really surprised me. It's a bit of a difficult question to answer because I've been at this now for 12 years. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's hard to think back to the, to the moments when I first realized something was out of the ordinary, something that I didn't expect. At this point, it all seems kind of expected. Was there anything else about the book you hope to be touch on? No, I, I think that's it. I mean, I, I, what I would say about the book is that it is a sincere attempt to write a book that makes arguments that can be heard by both parties in Hindu-Christian conflict. It's an attempt to acknowledge and pay attention 
to some of the grievances that Hindus have about Christianity and some of the grievances that Indians more generally have about their place in the world and about their interactions with the Western world on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, it is obviously also an attempt to take seriously the fact that there are Christians in India who live in fear, particularly in, at certain times, of becoming the victim of violence. And that's a problem that any Indian and any member of the international community should be concerned about. Um, I also tried really hard in the book to contextualize and and clarify the scope of the problem. Um, I think one of the one additional surprise in doing this research was realizing when I did a per capita analysis that the number of incidents of anti-Christian violence in India in any given year, so let's say on a given year there might be 300, is again per capita in terms of the number of Indians fewer than the number of hate crimes recorded in America by the FBI against Muslim, again, per capita, and far fewer uh, per capita than the number of hate crimes registered against Jewish people in the United States in any given year. So this is not a book which is meant to draw attention to how things are so horrible in India. Um, it's a book which is intended to shed light on and try to understand a particular conflict while acknowledging that this conflict in India is both related to and not entirely different from uh, conflicts that we have elsewhere in the world, including in the United States. Thank you. Now, um, given that it's been 12 years and you finally popped this out, you know, this is like, you know, um, book gesta gestations are more like Mahabharata gestations are much more than a year, right? They take a while. <laughs> but, That's right. Um, um, is there another bun in the oven or what are you working on now? So, uh, of course, just a few days ago, uh, a, an edited volume, the Handbook of Hindu-Christian Relations, the Routledge Handbook of Hindu-Christian Relations came out. That's a book that Michelle Voss Roberts and I edited. We've been working on for three years with an absolutely fantastic uh, class of, of scholars, uh, many of them associated with the Society for Hindu-Christian Studies. Um, so that's just come out and uh, we are, uh, Michelle and I are, are going to uh, continue that work with a, with a soon to be announced special issue of a journal um, that would focus on the same topic, but through case studies instead of more general overviews like we had in the handbook. That's one project. Um, I'm also involved uh, in a some sort of side projects. One, actually, a, a kind of limited time frame. One, looking at a couple of mega churches in India. Uh, mega churches are not my style of religion, um, and but uh, I do find them fascinating and they're politically important. And so I'm going to be working on a little side project there for a little while. I've also been shifting a little bit, and I'm going to begin writing more about uh, Hindu concerns about religious freedom in India and elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, including, for example, in the context of the Sabrimal affair uh, and the, the willingness of the Indian government to interfere in Hindu religious affairs 
in ways that concern some Hindus. And I'm also hoping in maybe about a year or two out to really uh, pivot and start doing some work on the marginalization, uh, oppression of Hindus in Christian contexts. Uh, probably not the United States, since we already have excellent scholars working on that here in the United States, but in uh, places like uh, Fiji and Trinidad, uh, South Africa, for example. So uh, essentially, I'm looking to invert the projects that I've been working on for the last decade or so. Instead of looking at Christian minorities in a Hindu-dominated context, I'll be looking at Hindu minorities in Christian-dominated contexts. So then we'll have to have you back on the podcast for part two, <laughs> for, the, for the flip side. <laughs> I, I'd love it, of course. Um, and, and and the podcast, of course, has a, a sufficiently broad title now to accommodate yes. pretty much anything, <laughs> any of the projects that you're producing. Speaking of which, we'll, we'll have um, you and Michelle on the podcast very soon to talk about the handbook. So that's something to look forward to. Great. For those listening out there. Um, Thank you very much for speaking with me today about your work. I'm honored. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, pleasure's been mine. So for those of you listening, we have been talking with Dr. Chad Bauman on his brand new um, publication, Anti-Christian Violence in India, uh, Cornell University Press. Until next time, uh, keep listening, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the texture of what we call Indian religions. Take care.